thousand feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. You're listening to Feminist Killjoy's PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel, and I am here to introduce an interview Melody did with Dr. Elena Levine. And I'm so excited for you all to hear it. I was not part of the interview because Melody did this when she was in Milwaukee, but it is really interesting, uh, particularly if you're interested in feminist media studies and television as a potential vehicle for either social change or reflecting social change and just the ways in which those things interact. So I hope that you enjoy it. We will be back next week with our Feminist Roundtable with guests Lacey Davis of Flex Your Heart Radio and Molly Woodstock of Smash Everything. And we're excited to bring you that as well. And that's all I have. Please check us out on the social meds. Like us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Maybe leave us an iTunes review. We'd be so grateful. Enjoy the interview. And I'll try to do justice to Melody's Wayne's World transition. Nope, <laughs> didn't do it well. Here we go. Thanks, Elena, for coming and sitting down with us and talking. My pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay. So I just wanted to say right up front that you are probably one of my, the first feminist like killjoys that I ever <laughs> knew. Okay. Since we've known each other and since I was an undergrad, right? So yes. Over I remember, 10 years. I remember the first class you were in with me. You do? Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, I think it was that advanced media studies and culture class. Um, and that was a new class that I basically created because we didn't really have a media studies track in our undergrad program at the time. Yeah. And it is possible that that was the first semester I taught it. Yeah. I can't remember for sure. It might have been in your class or maybe the next time I taught it also that Facebook had just come out. Yes. Do you remember having conversations about that in no, the class? Facebook happened when I started grad school, when I started to get Okay, so I remember that then it must have been like the next year or something, yeah. or a year or two after, a few years after that. Because Facebook was around, but not everybody was on it at first. It took a few years for people for it to spread. Right. But it, I just remember that it was the kind of thing I was not yet on, but my students were starting to be on. Yeah. And they were all up in arms about some change that had happened with the newsfeed where people were seeing whenever you made like a change to your relationship status or something like that. And they were like, I don't know if I like that. I don't want them. I don't want everybody knowing this. And I mean, if you just think about that, like maybe 10 years, right? It's not that long ago that that happened. And I just remember that moment of them being all up in arms about it. And now it's like everybody sees everything all the time. (laughs) Well, actually, do you know a quick story? The reason why I have a fake name on Facebook, which my listeners know, they can't find me. Um, The reason I do is because of our program. um, When I was teaching media writing in the labs, you could only, the only people that could be on Facebook were people with university emails. And so if you knew somebody's email, you could search for them. And my whole class, they're like, do you have Facebook? And I was like, I don't know. And, And I was like, I do, but I don't. And they all signed into Facebook. They all look for me at once. And this was when tagging photos was a new thing. Uh. And my friends had been tagging me in photos. Uh. 
of things that like I just don't want my students to see right, of me, right. you know, like nothing like totally inappropriate, but right. I don't want you to see me in New York City. Like it's right. just not. And so from that moment forward, I started using a fake name because oh, my students found me so fast and it just really bothered me. So yeah. I have, a, I've always been very, my online presence has been very curated and a lot of it's been shut off to the public. So anyways, that's, that's how that's all connected. Uh, but anyways, going back to that class though, okay. I remember that I was just kind of sitting there and observing how you dealt with some of the more problematic conversations that will come up in that class oh God, I don't even remember well, <laughs> I do and you just kind of shut things down in a respectful way but I was like dang like you just like Ooh. yeah and well, thank you the other thing I wanted to just share with the listeners too about you is when we were working together when I was doing my master's thesis on suicide girls you had been encouraging me to do more research on the different waves of feminism. Oh, right. And I had done my research and I came in and I just started reporting to you like what feminism was. And I was like, well, you know, in the 70s, they were burning bras. And you're like, they didn't burn bras. <laughs> I'm yes, sure ma'am. I said it much more nice. No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, anyway, so I appreciated your like affect and your presence in the classroom and yeah you were like it was like you and then I met Carol and I was like this is this is the type of like feminist I want to be so that's awesome and I remember just while we play we remember Mm -hmm. you came to me and you were like I haven't taken these class like this class these media Mm -hmm. studies things before but here's why I really want Mm -hmm. to and I like let you in even though you didn't technically Mm -hmm. I think have the prereq necessarily for the class and it was a great decision. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, enough memory lane. Yes. Let's yes. get into more about you. So you're a feminist media studies scholar. Yes, ma'am. How did you, you kind of, well, you watch me come into feminist media studies, mm-hmm. part of the reason. So how did you, I don't actually know, like, how did you get interested in feminist media studies? Okay, well, let me think how far back I should go. Um, So, well, I'll go really far back. I'll talk about when I was in college. So when I was in college, I thought I wanted to work in TV. I thought I wanted to be a TV writer. Uh, I did want to be a TV writer. I didn't just think I wanted to be. I still kind of want to be a TV writer. And I uh, was a double major in English and what was called at my university telecommunications, which shows you how old I am, Um, which was it was kind of a dated name at the time, but it was sort of like the media department. And I did mainly production kinds of stuff, but discovered basically in that program that people studied television in a kind of analytical, critical way, which I didn't know existed. It kind of, I mean, this was like the early 90s by the time I probably took that class. It didn't exist much before that. Like it kind of started in that period. And I knew about film studies and I took film studies classes, which were in the English department, which was also my double major. But I didn't know people did that for TV. And that just like blew my mind because I love TV, like love TV. And then I thought, okay, wow, this is really cool. And I took you know several classes and really loved it and felt like I think this is what I want to do. And I was like, I think I want to go to grad school and pursue this and try and become a professor and study this kind of thing. But I didn't 
but I thought, oh, I kind of want to work in, in TV and I want to, I should try that before I just go to grad school. So then I tried to get jobs and this was the early nineties again, when there was a recession and there weren't jobs. And I was also not willing to just take off and move to LA and try and break in. Cause I was way too scared to do that on my own at that age. And so I moved back to Chicago where I was from and I ended up getting a job eventually in like corporate communications and did like video production and public relations and things like that. And it was a good job for a person right out of college, but it also made me very certain that I wanted to go to grad school and I did not want a job like that long term. And so I just a few years in, I applied to grad school and I ended up going. Now, you may notice that in all this narrative I've been sharing, there's nothing about feminism because I was pretty clueless and did not know anything about feminists, really about feminism at all, um, but a little bit, but not a huge amount and definitely not about feminist media studies. The main professor I had as an undergrad was a was a man who was amazing and wonderful and I'm you know certain a feminist, but most of the courses that he taught weren't really engaged with questions of identity or kind of pol- politics that much, a little bit in terms of politics or representation, but not a ton. It was more kind of industry and textual um, analysis kind of stuff. And so he, but he told me to read, he's like, oh, you would really like these, this book that my friend Lynn, who's Lynn Spiegel, just wrote, you should read it. And he kind of told me about various books. He was friends with all these people. They were all writing things at the same time. And so I started to read a little bit of basically feminist media studies and thought, oh, this is really cool. Uh, But again, still sort of didn't really understand anything. And then make a long story even longer. Then I went, so I finally said I wanted to do this again, not really that clear on the feminist part of things, went to grad school. And that's where I really learned like that feminist media studies was a thing. I learned a lot more about feminism. I learned a lot more about all of that and uh, really found my fit. It wasn't just that I wanted to study media, but I wanted to think about it in this in these terms. And so that's sort of where it all happened for me, was really in grad school. So to get a little more, I guess, academic about it for a minute, what I think I learned in grad school that kind of brought together my interest in television and my growing sense of myself as a feminist media scholar and kind of how those two things came together was that the study of television at the time and kind of the origins of the study of television, I think, were inherently feminist from the beginning because of television, so for several reasons, television's identity as a domestic, primarily domestic medium, uh, rather than a kind of public medium like film was, uh, where people left the house to go watch mm-hmm. films initially. Um, and also it's kind of lower cultural status in terms of being seen as something that was um, commercialized, accessible to people of all ages and the kind of sense that because of its commercial and domestic nature, it was going to be, I mean, kind of, for lack of a better word, sort of dumbed down or kind of just made accessible to all and uh, appealing to all and being very kind of bland as a result. So I think there were all these associations with television that contributed to its identity as a feminized medium. And that a lot of the initial scholarly interest in it was from 
originally from feminists who were film scholars originally who said, wait a minute, there's this whole other story to audiovisual storytelling medium that's reaching a whole lot more people that's really powerful and influential. And maybe we should be thinking about that and not just accepting these terms of what's important that both scholars and our culture more generally have decided are that are probably considered more important because they're masculinized and public and culturally culturally legitimated in all kinds of ways that television wasn't. So that very kind of coming together of just being able to think critically and seriously about television as a feminist gesture, as kind of recognizing the significance and uh, the value, not necessarily in the traditional terms of artistic value and hierarchy, but the value in terms of meaning something for people in their lives of TV was really important to me. And when I understood, was able to think about the study of television from that perspective, it sort of all clicked for me. And it became, okay, I care about television, but part of the reason I care about it is that I believe just the very basic act of talking about it and analyzing it is um, a feminist act which is quite interesting in sort of the way that things have changed over the last, you know, 25 years where television has changed so much and has moved into streaming platforms and all these other things and really changed its cultural status in lots of ways. But I still hold fast to my, uh, <laughs> my belief that it's a fundamentally feminist gesture. And then, of course, became immersed in a lot wider array of feminist scholarship that was thinking not just about kind of the positioning of the medium, but thinking about representation and thinking about use and audiences and things like that, which have also become all questions that interest me too. Right. And so the kind of the the importance of studying TV, you have a book with Dr. Michael Newman, Mm -hmm. somewhat about that. Right. It's really about how the book Legitimating Television is really about how the way that we understand and talk about television has changed and how television has become more culturally legitimated. And part of our argument is not so much is yes, that that has happened, but also that we should approach that shift with caution because ultimately it actually ends up um, reproducing a lot of ideas about in particular gender and class and the ways that the old television that we've supposedly moved past have gotten better than have um, have surpassed and kind of risen above those ideas have not changed there are still lots of ways in which this other thing that we used to call television is seen as um, feminized is seen as low class is seen as not artistic not admirable not legitimate and in all of the efforts to legitimize certain kinds of television, those ideas are being continuing to be held up and continuing to be perpetuated. So it's really a, a gendered and classed primarily critique of those discourses of the legitimation of television. Rad. <laughs> and speaking of old television that has been feminized, yes, you study that. I do. Yes, through... just so happens. Yeah. Wow. It's like <laughs> the transitions are created for me. Um, yes. So you've been studying soap operas. I have, yeah. So I've been working on a book for a long time. Um, I mean, I've been doing other things kind of back and forth as I've worked on this project, but I've been working on it for about 10 years. And it's, I almost have a full draft of my manuscript. The book isn't, I don't think we're going to see the book, you know, for more than a year. Isn't going to exist as a book for quite a while still. But yeah, I've, I'm, compared to where I 
started, I've come very far with it. And um, yeah, the project is a history of the American daytime television soap opera, uh, which really traces it from its transition from radio to TV to the present. And it's arguing that looking at this history of TV soap opera is a way to understand um, American television history in a different way, because the genre has been essential to television, both economically and culturally throughout its entire life. And what happens in the world of of daytime soaps is often um, leading the way representationally, and uh, with things that then end up happening in other realms of television later on, and also is often, you know, it it's certainly often a part of the trends that we're seeing elsewhere on television and often initiates some of those trends. But of course, nobody has acknowledged that in television history proper because it's this denigrated feminized space. So uh, I look at that and then I also look at it as a way of trying to understand kind of shifts in constructions of femininity, but mainly like the whole notion of a kind of feminized cultural form over time. So basically from the late 40s, early 50s to the present. So it's a big project and one that I've loved working on, but that is, uh, you know, it's trying to do a number of things that's not just talking about the genre itself. Right, and this is coming after your book, Wallowing in Sex. Yes. Which, can you say a little bit more about that book? Because I love that book too. Yeah, so Wallowing in Sex was my, it was the book I wrote that was a revision of my dissertation research. Um, And that book is about American television of the 1970s. And it really uh, talks about television as a kind of social and cultural and political force that uh, helped to kind of translate the things we broadly speaking talk about as the sexual revolution. So by that, I mean women, the women's liberation movement, gay rights movement, and also just sort of changing ideas about sex and sexuality more generally, and kind of translated those to a a much broader, more mainstream audience from the more radical origins of those movements. Um, And in the process, it of course, you know, very much de-radicalizes a lot of the um, ideas that were so central to those social movements. But I think that this is a large part of how social change happens, which is that you get, you know, kind of radical disruptions coming from activist spaces and places like that. And television, which is a very, you know, conservative medium in lots of ways, but also very eager to speak to changing times to be appealing to what people are thinking about and feeling at any given moment took those pretty radical changes and gradually eventually found ways to work them into television primarily i look at entertainment programming but also advertising and and news as well and you know again does a lot to de-radicalize those changes and to kind of limit their force and impact but at the same time brings some recognition to a much wider public, a much wider mainstream that things are different than they used to be, that we have to acknowledge that gay people exist, that um, women might want to and be good at doing things other than caring for homes and, and children. So those kinds of things, which you know seem perhaps obvious to a more kind of, from a more like radical or activist perspective, were things that kind of had to be kind of gradually introduced and sort of gently fed to um, a kind of society at large. And I think that television plays a part in doing that, especially in these earlier periods when so many people were watching the same content at once. And that, of course, Mm -hmm. has changed quite a bit. 
Yeah. So just to give listeners like a concrete example of how soap operas dealt with some of these things, Mm -hmm. if I'm recalling correctly, towards the end of your book, Wallowing in Sex, and maybe you bring it up or use similar examples in Mm -hmm. your history book, but wasn't there a soap that dealt with abortion? It was like a big deal. Is that how you ended your... What was the last... Well, in Wallowing in Sex, um, there's a chapter about soap operas, which is really what kind of inspired me to write this longer history because it was so much fun writing that chapter. And that chapter is about rape stories on soap operas in That's the 70s. That's what it was. Okay. Um, of which there were many, and soap opera had not... There had been rapes on soaps in the 60s, but they didn't call it rape, and they didn't... You know, like, it wasn't really addressed as a social issue... Um, until the 1970s. And that is very much in keeping with the anti-rape movement, which was, of course, a feminist effort, but it was much broader than that in the 70s. Like, there was lots of, like, criminal justice reform and, um, you know, just general kind of activism around rape that was, I guess, some, some of which and much of which was part of the women's movement more generally, but not all. It was it was a really broad kind of social shift in the 70s. And you start to see that. So the soaps do a ton of stories about rape in the 70s that engage with, that are clearly engaged with the movement and all of those things. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned abortion. There's definitely interesting histories of abortion and stories on soaps too. In my new book, I, I talk about those. Well, there's so many examples I could tell you, so I could go on and on. Um, There's this great example from the mid-1960s from the soap opera Another World when it first began, uh, where a young woman, like college-aged woman, um, gets pregnant after having sex with her boyfriend and has an abortion. And it's kind of a disaster. It's like this sort of stereotypical, like, here's all the terrible things that will happen to you kind of story because she gets an infection as a result of the abortion, because the abortion is, of course, not a legal abortion Mm -hmm. in the mid-1960s. And she gets an infection, and she almost dies, and then she ends up shooting the the boyfriend, who's a jerk anyways, and he kills him, and she goes to jail, and she ends up okay in the end, of course. But um, (laughs) so there's that story. Although, interesting, so... I was able to find the, so the video of this doesn't exist anymore, but I was able to find the scripts of those episodes from the mid-60s. And it, I think the story is a little bit more, I mean, it's all the bad things that um, I'm describing it as, but there's a little more nuance to it because, you know, the the, the sort of nasty boyfriend kind of does not want to get married and makes the case to her of like, I think you need to do this because we're not going to get married and like, in 1965, being a, you know, a young single woman without... What would happen when people got pregnant is, at least middle-class people, was um, they would get married, and then there were probably lots of unhappy um, relationships that result... marriages that resulted. And he didn't want to get married, which was reasonable. They didn't belong getting married. This guy was, you know, not going to be a good partner to have this this girl for, for her life. And it actually was... You know, from our contemporary perspective, it was a good choice for her to get an abortion. Uh, I think many people would say. I'm sure some people would disagree with that. But it seemed like a smart choice for her. And really, the problems that she has are because she lies about it and because it's illegal. And she's, you know, she is treated under poor conditions and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And um, so there's there's some kind of interesting nuance to the story when you look at how it actually played out. And then in the new book, I also talk about the pretty famous story on All My Children of Erica Kane, who's like the kind of heroine slash villainess central figure of that show, um, played by Susan Lucci, who uh, has an abortion in the early 1970s. Interestingly, the kind of 
lore about this, if you look it up on Wikipedia or anywhere, is that she had this abortion post Roe versus Wade. And it's widely discussed as the first legal abortion on American television. Well, again, no, these episodes don't exist in video form anymore, but the scripts do. And so I looked at the scripts of this and actually the story took place in 1971 but it was a legal abortion. I went out a long rabbit hole of learning a lot about the history of abortion law and doing this. But before you know, abortion was nationally legal in 1973, it was a state-by-state situation. Mm-hmm. And so some states, you could get a legal abortion, and some you could not. And some states had more restrictions on what was and was not available to you and was not. And so Erica, the character's abortion is basically legal. Um, It's a fascinating um, story. She, the character lives in Pennsylvania and in New York, you could get an abortion, a legal abortion, kind of no questions asked. And she tries to do that. Okay, let me back up a little. Of course, when you talk about soaps, it's always so convoluted because the stories are so complicated. She's married. She's very young. Like again, I would say maybe like 19, 20 years old um, and married and does not want to have a baby because she, you know, does not want to have to be responsible for a baby. She's a very kind of selfish, vain character. And she was right. She didn't belong having a baby at that age. And she wants to get an abortion. And she tries to go to New York to get one. And she can't because there's so many women trying to get abortions where it was legal that she can't get in and get an appointment to get it done. And so there's this real interesting almost like critique in the in the story about like, okay, she could have easily had a legal abortion, but... She can't because they're so in demand in the, in the few places where it's accessible. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so she gets an abortion. So in Pennsylvania, it's I think the deal is that it was legal in real life. I'm talking about mm-hmm. under particular circumstances, like sometimes the you know the husbands can if they were a married woman, your husband had to consent and all that kind of stuff. And so the character lies and says you know that no. Okay, I just remember the details. <laughs> she doesn't say her husband consents. She says she's not married. And she kind of, like, almost... Uh, the way I analyze it is it's almost this replay of the 1965 story on Another World. But the the outcome is much better because she, I think she also gets an infection because, you know, that's what happens when you... There has to be some negative consequence, but she's fine and she doesn't shoot and kill anybody. And her husband eventually, like, accepts it and is like yeah, you know, I shouldn't have fought you so hard when you said you wanted an abortion if this is what you really wanted. And she also, throughout the story, has all of these speeches where she tells, you know, her family, her doctors, her husband, like, you know, this is my body, this is my choice, I don't want to do this, you know, I won't want to have this baby, and, like, outright makes very clear what she wants and doesn't want. And again, she suffers some negative consequence, but it's a pretty minor one, and she ultimately goes on and, you know, continues to wreck her... Her, her her damage on the world as Erica Kane can do. But anyways, I thought it was really interesting that it's actually, she does have a legal abortion, but it is actually before Roe versus Wade. And um, it it tells the story in really interesting ways. Sorry to go on, but it's no, very convoluted it. and to explain these stories sometimes. I'm really glad that I actually don't know these stories because I feel like if I did, then we would just be talking here for five hours Indeed, about yes. that uh, storyline. <laughs> But then, so just to actually kind of, just because I'm curious then, so really after Roe v. Wade, did the abortion narratives change again? Did you notice anything? Um, there's not a whole lot of abortions. In, I mean, it's in soap opera. Like, it's a pretty, it remains a pretty 
tentative thing. Although okay. there's way more in the 70s. I mean, abortion was much more broadly accepted by the public in the 70s. It really mm. takes like the late 80s and the kind of neoconservative turn politically for the broader kind of anti-abortion forces to really pick up steam. Like, it's much more widely accepted, you know, in that initial era. Um, I would say for the first, like, 10, 15 years or so after Roe versus Wade, it's not, like, it's not that big a deal for most people. And the fact that there were daytime soaps where characters had abortions without, you know, terrible consequence in the 70s is, is I think, pretty telling. Um, and then it just disappears. And I think it's very rare that a character would have an abortion, like, for a long time. Yeah. So it's, it, it's definitely something that's treated pretty carefully. But again, it's seen as more acceptable um, as a story device in the 70s than it is later on. It becomes a much more kind of hot button political issue beginning in the late 80s and in the 90s. Yeah, that reminds me of how Title IX was accepted the same way about how there was like female coaches. You know, if you look at the stats, there was tons after Title IX, tons of female coaches. Yeah. And then as the years go on, the numbers just drop and we're kind of in like a crisis situation now with, with female coaches. So it's interesting how yeah. right during that change, how acceptive yeah. the society is to these things. Right. And then over time, the right. anti-forces come in and change. Exactly. Change and I mean, narrative. and I think when you, you know, if you, when you, if you think about these things and study these things historically, you see how that there's patterns of social change. And this happens, this has happened for, you know. I can't say forever. I haven't studied the forever. But, you know, if you talk about, like, the 20th century or the later 20th century, second half of the 20th century in particular, every you see this over and over again. Like, there's, you know, there's certain forces that seem like, pro, you know, progressive change, and then maybe that lasts for a while, and then there's kind of pushback against it. And, you know, social change is very slow and incremental and two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. And you see that over and over again. And it happens with, so, like you say, the Title IX example is a good one. Abortion rights is one. I mean, feminism in general is, a, is another good one, is where you see that kind of those pushbacks over time. And there's this, you know, these waves, waves of kind of movement and then retreat and movement and retreat. And I wonder if gay rights is going to be another example. Yes, I worry that that is going to be <laughs> Really? Because I don't know if you've, um, well, just queer issues in general, I don't know if you've heard our president, you know, the president now oh, yeah. is really, um, just really changing the narrative on. Yeah, on. it seems so. Seems so. But I, it's not, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm trying to be hopeful that there's a lot of pushback, even from within the military, which I think there is, um, because I think the military is, you know, very um, supportive of its members and and sees transgender soldiers no differently in many ways than lots of others, because I believe that, you know, part of the whole logic, I mean, what do I know about the military? But my, my understanding is that, like, there's a very kind of cohesive, supportive mentality of, like, once you're part of the the armed forces you're part of it and yeah um anyways that seems like i'm hoping that there will be a lot of pushback and see and see what happens but although to complicate that just briefly yeah because i know listeners are like but yeah i mean the one thing that i'm thinking of though is when women are and men are sexually assaulted within the military like how unsupportive yes the army is and i don't mean to make it sound like the most progressive space obviously it is not but um, but if there's already fifteen thousand trans 
soldiers and military people. Sorry, yes. I'm not, I don't know anything about the military either. So right. I'm not using proper terminology, but right. there's already so many people right. in the military. In a volunteer army, right? Like it's like, yeah. who volunteer to do this? And yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. We're living in some crazy times. Yeah. So Scary just times. one more curiosity question and then we can, we can move on. So when you were, when you've been watching, cause you watched methodology yes. speaking, you just have been watching soap operas. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of been like, I, I jokingly say, and I've been working on my introduction for the book and I'm trying to write a bit about this. Like I've been sort of working on this book since I was 11 years old in some ways, which was yeah. when I started watching soap operas. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, in some ways I've been doing this my whole life, but in other ways, I've been very focused on doing specific viewing for the purposes of this project. But I've been working on that. But that's been happening for ten years, like my specific viewing for the purposes of the project. Yeah. So you're, you're so you're sensing patterns then, like as the. So I'm. I guess a specific question could be like. So then, when George W. Bush is in office and there's a lot of war, you know, we're talking about a lot mm-hmm. of war stuff, and we have a more conservative swing back. Like, do you see actual shifts in the soap opera narratives based on like who's in office, or is it more like when are you seeing the changes? Like you saw the abortion yeah. shift a little bit. I think it's. I think you have to be careful about connecting not just in soaps but in mm-hmm. any form of popular culture connecting representational shifts directly with, you know, something like a presidential administration. Okay. But I also think that there are general swings that um, tend to happen that, but it doesn't always happen in the ways you'd predict. So, I mean, the 1980s is a sort of interesting time in soap opera because it's a very fantasy oriented period where there's a lot of what were called the super couples who were like these young, uh, you know, heterosexual, almost always white couples in love going on these adventures and very like fantasy, like not, not sort of social, like the social issues disappear. There's lots of social issues in the seventies and the eighties, they disappear and it's like fun adventures. And, you know, in part, maybe that's a more conservative time in the country, but I think in, more than being outright conservative, it's a sort of turn away from social issues and political issues, which there's something conservative about that, right? Because it's like, let's just leave things as they are. But it's not necessarily pushing a particular agenda. And then, you know, there's lots of things that happen in the 90s where there's a clear effort to do more diversity um, in programs like racial diversity, sexual diversity, things like that, you know, very sort of not not effectively or not enough or, you know, sort of in, complica- in complicated and very flawed ways. But that is very much in keeping with the broader kind of 90s cultural shifts where there was a big embrace of multiculturalism. And yes, we get a, we get a Democrat in office in the 90s that might have encouraged some of that. But it's it's so hard to like draw these direct lines between one or the other of these things. And I mean, there's lots of people who've written about this kind of thing in terms of changes in acceptability of gays and lesbians in the nineties, but also racial diversity. But then there's some, you know, crazy shit that goes down in the soaps in the nineties too. Like, you know, Marlena being possessed by the devil on days of our lives, which is, it could be read in a very kind of campy way, but I I think is also a pretty conservative story and is very, is very much about kind of religious 
dogma and, you know, kind of holding on to religious faith and letting the forces of, you know, Catholicism basically defeat the devil. <laughs> so there's a pretty, uh, there's a lot of things going on and it's hard to kind of characterize them as a whole in any one way politically. Also, soap narratives, as is made clear from my conversation, are so complicated and convoluted uh, that it's hard to see them as straightforwardly one thing or another. I would, if Rachel was here, I just want to maybe vocalize something she would say about the the 1980s, about all the fantasy stuff that perhaps because the just thinking about who the writers are in Hollywood and that maybe they were creating like an escapism fantasy world mm-hmm. to like kind of handle what was going on for in themselves as yes. much as for the yeah. audience yes because because um I think well this is kind of an aside but Rachel got me into the bachelorette and one of her arguments was like it's a really shitty time right now yeah. and like you can actually just kind of escape mm-hmm. watch the bachelorette which actually for me mostly because of you, is almost impossible because I learned how to critically analyze uh, media very well Uh um, through you. And so, but, you know, the argument that when things are rough in society and there's more escapism and uh, fantasy narratives that come out, that might be a connection. Right. Yeah. One of the arguments I make and the stuff I've written about the 80s, about soaps in the 80s, is that the, you know, the kind of growing income inequality in the real world of the 80s, right? Where the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer and the poor, poor were demonized and, you know, all the awful things that happened in the 80s along those lines, that part of what happens in some of these, like, fantasy romance stories is is a kind of class difference between the, the man and the woman in the story, which is very easily surmounted and doesn't actually mean anything ultimately. Like, it's sort of just a small obstacle that they get over. And I think that that, again, that that serves that sort of fantasy purpose that you're saying, that, like, clearly in the real world, this stuff matters a lot, and we're feeling the negative effects of it. People who aren't rich people were feeling the negative effects of it quite strongly. But you can go into this world where it it doesn't matter. And, you know, you can fall in love with somebody who's has way more money than you and they won't look down on you and you'll be, you know, just as worthy as them and, you know, all those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And you'll have mm-hmm. this sort of mutually supportive relationship that is also really fun and you go on good adventures and there'll be cool pop music playing in the background while you chase the bad guys together or whatever. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> What would your pop song be if you're chasing bad guys? Oh, mine? Oh, gosh. Yeah. It would probably be an 80s one because I, you know, one that's like my originary moment of being a soap viewer is in that era. And then, I don't know. I'm only thinking, I'm thinking about the ones from soaps. Okay. Like, you don't it's have hard to, for me to think of my own. That was just a pop yeah. question. Yeah. I think I would choose like something from like 90s R&B because I really love like uh, yeah. TLC, Sister With Voices, oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. the kind of strong, like women who are rapping but also like played with gender in like really fun ways like see oh so good yeah yeah what happened anyways uh that's like a whole other podcast though yes you know i have a lot of interest in that yes so um can we shift gears uh, to talk about more like academia itself and like you existing within that space yes um so i guess something i'm curious about just to be punny with our podcast title feminist Mm -hmm. killjoy you're not only obviously you know a woman scholar and Mm -hmm. things are different like now than they were in the 60s and 70s but you're also studying you know a feminized form of tv Mm -hmm. and so i can assume that sometimes you get crap that you don't want to deal with but yeah just my general question for you is what have the challenges been 
being who you are and what you study in mm-hmm. academia and kind of how do you handle it? Yeah. I mean, I sort of have a little bit of an internalized um, sense, maybe sensor's not the right word, but kind of caution about what I say to whom about what I study. And that's not just about studying soaps, but like studying media, being a media scholar in general, because it's not a traditional discipline. So uh, once, when you leave grad school and you're no longer ensconced in your own, the world of your own field, most of, a lot of what you do and a lot of the people you encounter, at least in your home institution, are people from lots of other fields. Like you don't, there's way more people like you in grad school than there is after grad school. (laughs) Let me just put it that way. And so, and also media studies is a very interdisciplinary field. And so even people who are in your area or department often do things quite different from you. Okay, that said. So even being a media scholar is different than being saying like, I'm a historian, I'm an anthropologist, I'm a biologist, I'm a, I'm an English, I study literature, you know, like those kinds of things. You're in a kind of more vulnerable place to begin with, I think, because you don't have the same kind of disciplinary standing and like communication in general, if you want to talk about that as a field, it also is not a traditional discipline. So we're in a little bit different of a place. uh, And so you know, people will all recognize that, yeah, the media are important, but they don't quite know what that means to say. So sometimes I just say I'm a media scholar. I mainly, sometimes I'll say I mainly study television, television history, criticism, that sort of thing. And it depends on who I'm talking to, how I phrase that. And maybe that's, maybe I should be more open about it. I'm not sure. And then even in, in the more specifics of my work, I mean, I've sort of had to get to the point and, you know, this just happens, I think, for many people over time where I just don't care what anybody else thinks. Um, and maybe I've always been like that to some extent, but like, I, I don't care. I know what I'm doing is important and that it um, has value and that the actual, and not just in subject matter, but the actual work I produce is is very rigorous and carefully considered and argued and researched. And I know that. And so if you don't think so, that's your problem, not mine. I mean, I I think that that's, you know, and it's not just the soap thing. I mean, kind of everything I do is about pretty delegitimized kinds of culture, you know, so writing about a book called Wallowing in Sex, that's about kind of this 70s programming that nobody thinks is like good in a like high quality way is you know in and of itself like okay why would you be talking about happy days or charlie's angels or soap operas or whatever those things aren't value aren't worthwhile aren't serious you know i've dealt with this like this has been an issue my whole has been the fact of my whole career. I've never been interested. Like that's all I'm interested in. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna want to study something that's really culturally respectable. I just don't. I don't. I, that does. I don't care. So that's just not my my thing. Um, and so I guess I've just sort of made peace with it over time and ha- having um, faith and confidence that the work itself is 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 good and valuable and and persuasive and important is does it for me it was interesting this is kind of a related to this i so i edited this book about contemporary forms of feminized popular culture which really came out of the soap opera project because 
I was thinking about how soap opera had once been, along with things like romance novels, had been like the kind of central kind of women's culture. People talk about what's women's popular culture. Those are the things you would talk about. And people wouldn't say that anymore, right? The audiences have gone way down for soaps, all that kind of thing. So, but I had a strong sense that things have replaced it, um, oftentimes using some of the same appeals. And so I really wanted to think about that. And I was also teaching about that and I wanted stuff to use in teaching. And so I decided, well, I really, I can't study all of these things myself. I want to edit something where I can find people who are studying these different forms of popular culture that is feminized and, you know, kind of bring it together and think about what these things have in common in the contemporary context. So that led to that project. But I was uh, presenting just a kind of informal discussion about that project to, um, a group of women's and gender studies students and faculty here at UWM who were very, you know, nice and receptive and everything like that. And somebody, I think it was a graduate student, asked a question about sort of what you asked, like, well, how do you deal with the fact that some people might think that this is like silly or not important? And it was a really good question, but I basically told her I didn't care. And like, I know it's important. And I trust that like my knowing that is worth something. And, you know, if if somebody is not in, doesn't think it's important or doesn't care, then don't read it. I don't care. Like, you know, go find the stuff that you do care about. I know that the people who do read it or the students that do come to my class and talk about these things come to an understanding of why it's important. And I think you just have to give up. I mean, not give up. I mean, hopefully those people might be affected or changed at some point. But I think the best you can do is do the work well, whether that's the research and writing work or the teaching work and trust that it matters. Can you please tell listeners what the title of that book is? Oh, yeah. Sorry. That book is called Cupcakes, Pinterest, and Lady Porn, Feminized Popular Culture in the Early 20th, 21st Century. Yeah, I have like a perverse, clearly thing about making really about titles that are really in your face about something being feminized and delegitimated and... Um, things that are seen as silly. Also, I think it's going to get the award for best academic book cover of all time. It is, which I can take no credit for. The press, um, the University of Illinois Press, big props to them. Um, You know, when you write a book, you don't often have that much say in the cover. Sometimes you can make suggestions. And uh, I knew I didn't want some like stock photo of a woman sitting on the smiling at the cover. One, because when I see those, I always think that that person on the cover is the author. And I didn't want people getting this idea of who I was based on some woman on the cover. Also, though, it's obviously really, you know, cheesy. So uh, I was like, I don't know. And, And my editor was like, well, we've been doing more with just text and doing text in interesting ways. I'm like, that's cool, whatever, you know, let me know what you come up with. And they came up with this cupcake, um, which there's an amazing chapter in the book about cupcakes by Elizabeth Nathanson. That's one of my favorite chapters. That's super smart. And uh, so I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, that's good. It kind of is, it looks, you know, femi and it's pink and it's cute and all that kind of stuff. I think that is evocative of the book. And then I didn't even know until the actual copies of the book arrived that there was glitter, glitter. on the cupcake. Glitter. Like, there is glitter on this book. Which is just amazing. In general, but then also that it's an academic book and yeah. it's your book and it's ah, just love it. I don't like glitter personally, it's a mess, but But on your but book it looks symbolically it's fantastic. Yes. Like I've seen covers with like cheesy stock photos of people. And those are like those are just the worst. They don't they're cheesy and then you get to start to think, well maybe that's so and so. 
No. Yeah. No, I hear you. Do you know the title for your soap opera book yet? Yes. It's called Her Stories, Daytime Soap Opera and U.S. Television History. Cool. That's not as in your faces. It's not. But but it's more of a his- history book, right? Did you try to keep it more mellow, the title? No. I just, I mean, I I really liked the idea of calling it Her Stories. One, because a lot of, especially older women, you hear that people referring to their soaps as their stories. And also for the herstory, yes. her story, her stories, her story, yes. like this, you know, feminized uh, approach to history. And yes. you can have like Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren like coming out of the sides. <laughs> I don't know what, I haven't thought at all about that. I'm just trying to finish the manuscript. I can't I just think, think about, that would be good. I can't think about the cover, but okay. Yeah. Just like I Hillary trust the press Clinton. will do something great. I'm just kidding. Your book has nothing to do about Hillary Clinton. It or doesn't. Uh, no. That's fine. It was no. just like, you know, never mind. My attempt at humor. <laughs> um, is it still true that if you weren't an academic, you would then be a TV writer? I mean, in my fantasy life, yeah. I would be. I don't know. You know, obviously, that's not a very easy world to break into. Yeah, I think. Or, you know, now sometimes I think about, like, be, truck, chucking it all to become, like, a professional organizer and life coach. <laughs> You would be so good at that. Thank you. Because yes. I think you spend a lot of time doing life coaching for people. Like, oh, interesting. I never or thought will about you, that. I've tapped, I've tapped you multiple times because yeah. for for the listeners, when Elena did her dissertation, and you were turning your dissertation into a book when we were working together right. when I was a master's student, mm-hmm. and she had you had like note cards, like you organized everything in right. note card on note cards, which is amazing to begin with, but. What that signaled to me is that you're a very organized researcher and, you know, first off shows how rigorous you were because you just documented everything. But also I feel like if I do need help with organizing, not political organizing, but, you know, Mm -hmm. organizing my thoughts or organizing my actual research, Mm -hmm. I go to you. I mean, we were just talking about my new right. Mr. Rogers project yeah. and I tapped you for a reason. But also as we were talking, I was thinking like how amped or excited you make me about like feminist media studies. Aww. I was like, as we were talking, I was like, I'm so, I like want to go home and just like start like writing more. And you know, so I think there's something about your energy too Aww, that would make you, you to be very a, sweet. a very good personal organizer or life coach. Yeah. You should do that. Okay. Well, yeah. I support you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So sometimes when you, you know, you really want to just academia is driving you crazy that I, you know, think about that of, and also because academia is like an increasingly like poorly um, compensated world. So um, I start to think, well, maybe I should have a side business. And you, you start to, you start to think a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now with the, I mean, just the way that I'm not an economy person, but just the way that the internet allows for that kind of stuff to happen. Mm-hmm. And just the way that we're using the internet now for people to start small businesses yeah. and like the professor is in like that whole yeah. business that started and there's all these really cool alternatives to using your academic skill set to help yes. others. Absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so just in the interest of time, I think we're going to have to wrap up soon. Already, I see. Yeah. We try to keep them to an hour. I'm sorry. We could have a continuing series because I could just talk. I will come back. <laughs> I will come back. We could do a, a three-person conversation with Rachel. I mean, yeah. That'd we can keep going. We have had return guests, so okay. you could be considered for that. 
I don't know if I would pass the bar of whatever, but okay. So before we get into RWL, yes, the last question that I will that I have for you is: we have a lot of grad students that listen mm-hmm. that are kind of in tumultuous space. Well, they have expressed, you know, grad school is very stressful. Yeah, and I think being feminist or queer or whatever, it's hard. Yeah. And so now that you're on the other side, you've been on the other side of academia for right. so long. Do you? This is just such a, this is too broad of a question to say, like, what advice do you right. have? But given kind of what we've been talking about yeah. and knowing what it's like to be a grad student mm-hmm. um, in the feminist media studies world or just media studies or in an alternative kind of discipline, right. do you have some kind of go-to advice that you that you give your fellow Killjoys? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's way harder now, I think. Like, the academic job market is way tighter and harder now than it was when I finished. So I feel a little bit, like, disingenuous being able to give too much advice because, like, things are different now and it's way harder. And yeah. um, that's a fact. And I didn't have to deal with that in the same way that people do now. Also, I mean, this is a really hard uh, thing to accept, especially for gra- the pe- kinds of people who go to grad school who are typically good students and good performers. But academia is not a meritocracy. Like, you do not not necessarily, you know, you're not necessarily rewarded for being the best at what you do or for doing really great work. Um, there's a lot, you make compromises and it is an, I mean, it is an amazing and fortunate career if you can get a secure position in academia and, you know, keep it. It is, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but the kind of ambitions or dreams that one might have for certain kinds of positions and status and things like that are such a series of circumstantial factors that are not always in your control, uh, that are almost never in your control, and that are really not about you and are about a, a system that's flawed and biased in lots of ways that you have to, like, not, you have to figure out a way to not take it personally or to not see it as you doing something wrong or are you not succeeding or excelling to the extent that you'd like to. So that sort of, it's not a meritocracy lesson is one to keep in mind, I think. Um, but at the same time, I, because I love what I do so much, I still would say that my best advice to people is to do like the best work you can do. Well, one, because like it's, where's the pleasure in not doing best work you can do like you wanted you want to you should love what you do enough that you want to do it well and especially in academia because it's a stupid it's a stupid path to take if you don't love it like it's it's you know you're you don't have a lot of control over where you live your job prospects are somewhat limited you give up um, a lot of good earning years to being uh, to be trained as a grad student um, you know like there's a million factors that make it not an ideal path unless you really are passionate about it and love it. So given that, I would say, you know, do the best work you can do, because for me, the reward is that is doing that work. And yeah, that teaching and writing and mentoring and advising and, you know, all of those things like it's I wouldn't it wouldn't be pleasurable. It wouldn't be rewarding if I wasn't didn't feel like I was doing it as best as I could or putting as most as much into it as I could. So I would encourage people to do that, to like really do the best work they can, even at the same time as being very aware of that that might not matter. That is so depressing. That it might not matter. That it might not get you the goal that you have in mind. 
Well, I think it's it's not depressed just to, you know, positively frame that. It's yeah. I think another way to say what you're saying is that you want to make sure that you're doing it because you personally enjoy it and not because yes. you're trying to find outside appreciation or outside confirmation that you're right. the, you know what I mean? Like yes. you really have to be personally motivated by it because yes. there's not going to be somebody that comes in and says like, your articles are amazing. Here's $5,000 right. and we'll just publish everything. Like it's just such a slow, right. hard process, right? you know, and that's, so you have to have some kind of personal pleasure in it. Right. And right. pleasure or just like reward or value yeah. that you think yeah. it's important or valuable or necessary or whatever. Like, yeah. Outside validation does not come easy. Correct. Yes. And academia is a bad place to go for outside validation because even in the moments when you're getting validated, you're getting smacked down like in reader reports, right? So even yep. when mm-hmm. they, you know, they say, yes, we want to publish this, here's all the things wrong with it. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's incredibly painful. And um, it's, yeah. Yeah. Rachel and I went through that with our uh, Orange is the New Black Instagram piece ah. that eventually ended up in Bitch Media. Nice. Remember that when yes. I talked to you about it? Yes. But we tried to get it through at least one journal and just like the things that they said were wrong with it. We're like, just, it just, it's hard. Just, yeah. that's a whole other conversation. Yes. But it's very hard to like know that you're doing groundbreaking, very important work and to get the comments back that really don't have much to do with your general argument. It's just like nitpicking or whatever right. professors feel like they need to do in journal reviews. So anyways, okay. Yes. So, are we? Are you ready? We might need to take a break here, but RWL. Okay, so I will go first. So I'm reading, I just read this children's book called Why Do Families Change? And it's mm. about separation and divorce. Yeah. And um, I just found it at my friend's house who's going through a divorce. But the reason why I'm even like bringing it up on air is just to let people know that it exists, especially because it was a really for the lack of a better term, like progressive and how mm-hmm. they talked about separation and divorce. Like even before they got to the divorce part, they were explaining like how people come together in not only marriage, but like they were talking about sometimes people just are common, you know, common law together. Like they decide yeah. to devote themselves to each other, but they don't get married. But and then like two of the people getting married were two men, you know, so just in the visuals, it's already like allowing Uh for a lot of Mm -hmm. different uh, situations, which is really helpful for children because sometimes when you read was, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes when you read books about a certain issue or or something like your situation is different and it's, you know, you have to explain, well, you know, in our family or, you know, in your life, it's like this, but they gave visually and in in words so many different Hmm. situations that it, it was like, wow, like almost anybody can talk about about what's going on here right um so nice. it's just it's just i always get excited when i see children's books like that because yeah. i they didn't probably used to exist no yes. and children's <laughs> books can be i have a a lot to say about them but yeah. they're not usually so representative of all different families so yeah. that was really great to see and also i just want to let you know that it's a resource that exists for nice. listeners who might need that for themselves or their friends it's by dr jillian roberts i'm watching uh I'm watching video game playthroughs. Have uh-huh. we talked about these before? Yes. I'm watching my friend. I was hanging out with my eight-year-old friend this week. So yes. we are watching a lot of the walkthroughs and I'm fascinated by them, oh. but also like slightly bored by them. They're so boring. My, <laughs> my seven-year-old, I mean, both of my kids have watched them. The older one is not so into it anymore, but the seven-year-old, like that's his main, his main YouTube kind of thing. Oh man. My, my Tate and your son should be friends because they would just, well, maybe not because then that's all they would do. But the thing is like, at least they could talk to each other about it because with my buddy, it's like, 
he wants me to watch and it's like I just don't understand and like frankly I'm like not super into it but that's not a personal thing against him it's just like if we write a book we'd be mutually like talking about the same thing Uh but I don't I don't play these video games and so I'm not really I'm just still super fascinated by the whole thing though like Mm -hmm. why why people are so into it and how many people watch and the different styles of videos and anyway so uh, probably or somewhat out of my control I've been watching more of those this week so Got and it. I feel kind of guilty isn't the right word but it's like I'm sitting on this gold mine of research too mm-hmm. like where it's like oh if anybody ever wanted to study people yeah watching these things it's like I have a prime candidate for you <laughs> uh, unfortunately I'm not into that as a research right. project but right would, yeah if I cared more yeah yeah he'd be I a gold mine but. but uh anyways just fascinated as that being a new form of And it's really his TV. I mean, it really is his screen time when he watches those. It's not PBS or, you know, cartoons. Like, that's his screen time, which is also just kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. And they're long. They're like hours. They're like an hour. I'm like, this is the last video. And then I'm like, oh, great, it's an hour. Like, why did I just say it's... I was like, shoot, I gotta... Anyways. So I'm watching that, and then I'm listening to... I started listening more to classical music in my car because mm-hmm. our local NPR station in Minneapolis, they've always had a classical station, but it's only been online. And they got a radio, like a real radio station hmm. that you can tune into, which I find to be an interesting like right. backwards move. And I don't know enough about the radio industry to understand like how and why that is lucrative or not or whatever. But I just started to see billboards up on uh, around the city. And so now it's in my thing. So I've been listening to a lot of classical music, which I usually don't. I just hear it's really good for you. And, you know, sometimes when I turn on the radio and I hear the 45th voice and uh-huh. it gives me a panic attack like George W. Bush used to. Yeah. And I just switch it to classical. and That's nice. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, my car is like from 19, it's Carol Stabile's car. Oh, wow. And it's from 1998. So it's, you know, CD, there's no aux cord, you know, as <laughs> listeners know, I just got Spotify. So I'm very like behind the times. Yeah. And I really genuinely love radio though. Yeah. Obviously this podcast, I'm really yeah. into audio stuff and I love listening to radio, but sometimes it's like hip hop, pop music and NPR, which can be maddening. So yes, it's nice to have that option. Cool. That's me. What about you? Well, okay. So reading. Um, well, I've gotten more into. I used to love, love, love to read fiction as like a kid. Basically, until I was probably in a little bit in college, I probably slowed down. And then in grad school, I basically stopped reading fiction because, mm-hmm. as people know, you read so much for school that I was like, I don't want to read anymore. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time for me to get back to it. And for me, the key was getting a Kindle, which sounds like. Like, obviously, there's lots of ways to read books that you do without a Kindle. But um, I really like reading fiction on a Kindle. Um, one, because I check stuff out of the library through their, like, e-checkout, which is just the coolest. I just think it's cool, so I like doing it. Um, but also because um, then I read, like, I don't know, I find it easy to have it with me in lots of different spaces. Like, in my house, in bed, late at night, when it's dark, I can still read. Mm. Um, anyway, so I've been reading, I'm in the third of uh, the... Jane Smiley's um, trilogy called The Last Hundred Years, which is traces this family, this originally Iowa farm family over a hundred years. Every chapter is a year and you don't hear about every character in every year, but you get like vignettes of the different characters' lives. So it totally pushes all of my like history buttons, tracing like characters over time buttons. It's very kind of soapy in that way. It's not like melodramatic, but it's like 
you feel following this family over time. And I really, I really love it. And I'm in the third of those now. So I've been, I mean, like my academic reading is much more spotty. Like I read stuff because I'm trying, I mean, I try to read actual whole books, but I, and sometimes I do to like review manuscripts or to things like that. But the, you know, four things that I'm writing about. And so I just read a chunk yesterday of this really interesting older book. It's called More Work for Mother, which is about, it's like a history of housework. And it's a, it's a like a prize winning book that probably was published in like the 80s or so. And for a point I was trying to make, which as most of these things are, it's like a small point, a few sentences, and then you end up reading all this totally. stuff to make it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's a, it's a great book. And like, people should read it. Watching... I watch lots of things. I know. It's like, that's such a silly question for you. Like, finished watching <laughs> Glow on Netflix. We watched the last episode of that last night, which I liked but didn't love. It was fun. It was like, it was fine. I mean, I'm always watching General Hospital, which I don't even like most of the time, really, but I'm watching it. I'm actually trying to catch up because I'm many episodes behind. Sort of, it's for my research, but also my pleasure. I'm watching these, like, 19, early 1970s episodes of this soap opera called The Doctors, which are being rerun on one of these small broadcast networks called Retro TV. And um, I really like it a lot of the time. It's very slow and boring sometimes, but I'm also kind of invested in the story. So I like that. And you know what else I'm watching, which is like crazy for me and a little bit embarrassing, which is a lot of cable news. Which I never, I hated cable news. Like I would not watch it. And at post election, well, immediately post election, I was like, I could not watch anything. I was like, completely shut myself yeah. out of all news coverage because I couldn't take it. Right. But then I think as the um, scandal started to build, I started to get more interested in watching. And I primarily MSNBC, but a little bit of CNN also really kind of invested in kind of watching that story. And I realized after a while that it was sort of following a, a, a serialized narrative in some yeah. ways, like watching the story unfold and like what was going to be the new revelation that night, which is again, so online. I mean, I never, I hate that stuff normally. <laughs> But I'm sort of really invested, I think, in hopefully certain certain uh, people getting taken down at this point, which like, who knows whether it's going to happen or not. But watching the kind of scandal unfold in the revelations day after day, it's been kind of, I can't stop watching. I feel like MSNBC is a little less sensational than like CNN and Fox it is. News. So it's probably a little so. easier yeah. to handle, but I still can't handle the like over the top kind of blowing things out of proportion like yeah. it, it confuses me yeah there's I mean I've been again maybe I've just been sucked into the whole world but I find like some pretty good like some it like all depends on who's the commentator and who's talking but like some pretty good explanations and background and discuss sometimes of sure. like oh I didn't know that that's how also like this whole experience of what we're going through now is like such a civics lesson for all of us about like how the government works, what's allowed and what's not allowed, how the system of checks and balances works, all that stuff. Stuff you kind of know, but you don't spend a lot of time thinking about or really thinking about the nuances of. And, you know, some of these people who come on who are like, have these backgrounds and and having experienced these things or studied these things or reported on these things for a long time, you get, I don't know, I'm finding it kind of interesting. But it has to be the right stuff, the right moment. I can't watch, like... When it's really terrible, when, when I can't stand watching anything about, like, bad things happening to people. Like, mm-hmm. so when there's, like, stories about tragedies and disasters, and even a lot of the kind of healthcare debate stuff, I can't, I have a hard time watching because it's so upsetting to me to think about, like, the harm that might be coming to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more of, like, political scandal kind of stuff that I like, <laughs> I admit. 
The Russian one's good. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like great soap opera. Yes, yes. absolutely. Oh my god. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. Listening, I didn't oh. say that. Oh, sorry. L, I it was just so L. long. I was like, I'm sorry. I no, told it's you I was going to go on. So no, no, no. I don't, um, I don't listen to that much music. If I'm in a coffee shop and people around me are talking, I'll listen to like music without lyrics on like Pandora or oh, something just to, to block. To, yeah. I don't really care what it is as long as it doesn't have lyrics, but it's usually like classical or jazz piano or something. Mm-hmm. So I don't listen to much music. I do like podcasts. I have a hard time finding time to listen to them because I don't spend a lot of time in the car, which seems the or in the car by myself. But I like this one called Feminist Killjoys, PhD, good podcast. Oh, yeah. cool. Good um, to know. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not as into like, I mean, I listen to some of the, some of the NPR type ones sometimes, but there's a great podcast called Stuff Mom Never Told You, which is a very feminist oriented podcast, which recently got some new hosts and I haven't listened to any of them with the newer hosts yet, but um, two women hosts and they really kind of delve into various topics, a lot of pop culture related ones, but sometimes political ones, they'll just like have an an episode about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and talk about her influence and her career and things like that, or talk about various kinds of feminist issues and really kind of they don't just mouth off about what they think they do research and they kind of report on findings that they've discovered as they've done research and things like that it's a really smart feminist uh podcast so i like that um and then i listen to some like mom parenting type ones sometimes but those start to drive me crazy and then i stop cool yeah okay do you know how we end our podcast yes WTF power? Yes. So if I say WTF, will you say power? Yes. Okay. WTF power.